0: and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur.
1: This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur today. Thanks for being here with me as we talk about founders who serve. We talk about the power that comes in being of service to the people who work for you and to the clients that you work with. Thanks so much for being here with me. I'm so grateful for you. We have a jam-packed full show filled with amazing guests who have amazing books that I'm so excited to bring to you today as we really do talk about this really important, highly impactful concept of being the founders, being the owners, being the CEO of the company, and truly serving the people that work for us, really bringing to light their greatness, highlighting them and giving them the opportunity to really, truly shine in the business that, yes, we created, but now we empower them to really, truly bring forth the greatness that is them into the world. That allows our company to shine and to be better and to do better it allows us to shine and do better and be better and most importantly it allows us the capability to really reach the customers that we're really meant to serve and maximize while it's called today as we live as thriving entrepreneurs let's jump into it join me in welcoming jason duncan hey jason how are you doing today
2: I am good. It's a great day. Today is my birthday. So it's a a good day. And the day that my book launches. So double, double good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And happy birthday to you. And I probably should have said the real Jason Duncan.
2: (laughs) That's right. Don't you forget it.
1: Absolutely. So um, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you show up in the world.
2: So I am, uh, I'm an entrepreneur on a, a lot of different businesses on seven right now. Um, and I have in the past total founded about 12 companies, but the thing that I spend most of my time doing is, uh, as a business coach. And so I work with entrepreneurs on how to exit their business without selling them. I call it exit without exiting. So professionally, my vision You know, what I want to see happen is I want to see 100,000 entrepreneurs set free from the ironic prison of entrepreneurship. And then once we work towards that goal together of seeing that many entrepreneurs set free, I want to work with them together to help 10,000 people escape poverty and mediocrity through entrepreneurship. So that's my vision. That's what I want to see accomplished in this world.
1: I love that. And your book, which did launch today, is called Exit Without Exiting. How to exit your business without selling it and begin living the exit lifestyle much sooner than you ever thought possible. So let's talk about what is the exit lifestyle.
2: I think for everybody, it's going to be a little different. Um, but what I think we have in our brains about what it means to exit is is this this place where we sell the business and we don't ever have to worry about money again. I think that's what everybody thinks it means to exit. It's like you're sold the business A PE firm or VC firm comes in and buys you and you're done. You go buy a new Ferrari and you, you have a yacht. The reality is that doesn't happen for most. I think like 2% of people ever get to experience that type of exit from a business, but, but a version of whatever that lifestyle would be for you when you had that money can be lived now without having to sell the business. So for some people the exit lifestyle would mean just not having to set an alarm anymore. Some people would say, well, I want to travel the world. Other people say, well, I want to start other businesses. Other people want to say, I want to do, do mission work, whatever it happens to be. What, what I, what I believe is I believe that you can live a version of the exit lifestyle now, even while you own the business, as long as you're not being slave to the operations of the business day in and day out.
1: Mm, Such a good word too, because Uh, You know, there's the age old concept being an entrepreneur is the only place where you quit a 40 hour job to work 60 to 80 hours a week. Um, How do we get beyond that uh, company slavery mentality to actually being truly free in our business?
2: Well, that that you you said mentality and that, in fact, is what it is, Steve. It is a mindset it's a false mindset perpetuated by Instagram and TikTok gurus who tell you that it's all about the hustle. It's all about the grind. You know, don't sleep, you know, you sleep when you're dead, work hard. And all of this is perpetuated and has been for many years. It's just become much more popular in the past uh, decade or so. But what's happened is, is that as, as younger people or, or even people my age who started as an entrepreneur much later in their life, I didn't start it until my thirties, but I, but we believe that that's the way it is, and our expectation and, and our mindset is that entrepreneurship is hard. Now that doesn't mean it's uh, it's simple, <laughs> or, or that it's not easy. Uh, but but they, we believe that it's a hard road to hoe. That you have to work ninety hour weeks. That you've got to do all that, and that's simply not true. Now is that a lot of people's experience for sure? But if we're gonna get if we're gonna escape from that, we have to first change our mindset. And one of the things that I believe and I I talk about this in the book is I believe that you can successfully operate a business in less than 20 hours a week. My goal is 10, but I think you can operate less than less than 20 hours a week without losing any profit. Now think about this. If, if you're, if you're owning and operating a business that's bringing in several million dollars a year and you're taking home, let's say you're taking half a million dollars, you know, that, that, that's a pretty standard. If you're running a pretty successful multi-million dollar business, that's pretty standard take home pay for, for an entrepreneur. What if you could keep taking that half a million dollars home every, every year, but you, you cut your hours from 50 to 60 down to 20 or, 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 or 10, even one of the companies that I own that I started back in 2010, I I literally only put in 10 hours a year into the business and it's a multi-million dollar business. You know, it's running fine without me. I believe that you could do that because I did it. So I'm not talking about what I think could happen. This is based on my actual experience, now the experience of my clients.
1: Now, I want to be clear what you're talking about isn't something either A, that's woo woo, or two, some kind of magical hope, wish, and dream. It is actually something that both you've done as well as there are some very practical things you need to do and to make it happen. Um, I'm assuming that probably the next piece of the conversation is talking about what systems do you have in place to allow you to be able to do that? Is that correct?
2: Well, you would you would think so. And in, and in fact, it is part of what I talk about in the book. It's part of my core concepts that I teach, but it's not the first one. And what's funny is that people like you, Steve, everybody, say, everybody makes that first assumption. Just put systems in place and you'll be fine. Well, the reality is systems are indeed important. Systems and processes are the third piece of my four-piece puzzle that I teach people how to, if you put these pieces of puzzle together, you could exit. But it's only the third piece, and they're sequential. Because if you put systems and processes in place, but you haven't yet first know how to delegate, and you haven't yet learned how to deal with your stress in the business, what you're doing is you're going to put systems in place where you'll still be the savior of the system, and it will be a stress-based system where it's acting on re actually reacting to the urgent matter at hand, not doing what's necessary to keep business pr- progressing. So the four concepts that I teach the four core principles, which I reveal in the book through the characters of Edward and Cheryl and James, as my prototypes for showing you how this works, I show that the first core principle is you have to embrace delegation. And most entrepreneurs think that they're doing it right, but they end up practicing either confiscation or abdication And not true delegation. And I show you how to do that. Number two, I'll talk about how to eliminate stress because stress, you know, how you operate as the founder, as the owner of the business bleeds into the employees, which bleeds into the customers and the vendors. So if you can learn how stress affects everything and de-stress the business, you have a much cleaner path towards exiting. Then the third step is systems and processes, which you're 100% right. You've got to get those in place because systems don't take a day off. Systems don't take sick days. Systems don't have babies. You know, systems are, they're, they can run and you can plop new people in if you put, put the right ones in. And the fourth step is investing in people. And there is a financial way that you can invest in people to make this work. And there's also the other side of investing, which means to furnish with power, authority and rank. And so if you invest in your people the right way, you've got this core system, you've got delegation, you've got the stress elimination, you've got the systems and processes, and you've got the right people, and those continue to feed one another. That's what this book is about.
1: Now, a person, of course, needs to get the book and read all of them and not just be like, oh, well, Jason told me the thing, so now I can just go off and do it all on my own. But I am noticing a thread in what you were saying, and that's Um, essentially the word let go, which is really hard for us as entrepreneurs, because it's like, well, nobody's going to do it as well as I do. Well, you know, if I don't worry about the money, then the money won't come in. You know, I mean, on every single one of those four things you said, um, I think it's almost ingrained in who we are as entrepreneurs that we always take responsibility for things. So how can we still be that deeply passionate and responsible person um, and also let go of all the things you're talking about?
2: Well, the the answer is, it's just like what I was talking earlier. This is mindset. Um, Imagine the arrogance of anybody saying to you, you could never do something as good as I can. I mean, if I said that to you right now, you would think that was an arrogant statement, and it might, it might in fact, be true. But regardless of the truth to the matter, it, it comes off as arrogant. But that is, in fact, how most entrepreneurs work. They they look at their employees that they're paying salaries to, they've hired and they put into positions, and they give off the subtle, sometimes not so subtle, cues of "you'll never be as good as me." And and how arrogant is that? Because it, it, the truth is. At one point in the past, you sucked at it. (laughs) Like you weren't good at it. You didn't know. When I started my lighting company in 2010, I didn't know anything about lighting. Uh, I knew how to sell. That was really my core strength. I knew how to do that. I didn't know anything about lighting. I didn't know how to get leads. I didn't know any of that stuff. I sucked at all that stuff, but I I figured it out. So how arrogant would it be of me three, five years into that deal and hired a new employee to help with something and say, "Mm, I just need you to push paper around because you're never going to be as good as me. That is, that's a mindset. That is a mindset that keeps entrepreneurs trapped in what I call the ironic prison of entrepreneurship, which is why I want to see through this book and through my podcast and through my coaching and through my public speaking appearances, I want to see people get free from that. And it starts with these six inches between the ears, man. We got to get the brain set right. And then we put the tactics in place.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit then. Just give a little bit of teaching again, they need to get the book to get all of it. But um, where do we start when we've been in that hustle, hustle, hustle mindset? Where do we start breaking that cycle and begin to really embrace what you're teaching?
2: So um, I hate to be, we're so repetitive, but it is a mindset thing and you're going to have to ditch the cape. The, heat, the superhero cape that you've been wearing as the entrepreneur, solving every issue, putting out every fire, being the center of everything, you've got to realize that that, that is, that's not going to keep... You can't scale yourself, right? I mean, you can't. You can't do that. So you've got to figure out how to manage your mindset because your reality is directly related to the way you think. So if your business relies on you, it's because you think it needs you. So you've got to change the way you think, what we think about, we bring about. So the first thing you got to start doing is you got to understand that if you continue to rely upon yourself and that business, it is never going to grow beyond you. And as good as you are, you still are susceptible to being hit by a bus, uh, getting a sickness, getting ill, you know, having a mental, mental collapse at any time. I mean, that happens. We go through these nervous breakdowns, like any of that could happen. And then what happens to your team? What happens to your company? I was having a conversation last night with a friend of mine, and uh, he's a very, very successful entrepreneur here in the Nashville area. And uh, we're, we went down to the uh, the North American unveiling of the new Ferrari SUV, which was uh, the Pearl Songway, I think is how you say it. It was, it was a cool trip. So we're going down there, we're talking business. And he was asking me about my book. And I said, you know, if, if we as the entrepreneur keep running the business and it's the center of the business and then something happens to us, what happens? And he had to say, well, you know, my business will probably take a huge leap backwards if not close down. And that's the reality. So we we have to start, Steve, with the mindset. We got to understand that it's arrogant to think that nobody can do it better than you because that's not true, because they will eventually do it better than you. I've got stories that I, I've got somebody that works for me that's much better at me now at one thing that I, at the time I was the best guy in the world at it when I hired him. Now he's better than me. Uh, so it's arrogant to think that. And then second, it's selfish. This is the other thing. It's selfish to believe that you should be in the middle of the business because you're actually putting your employees and their families and their livelihoods at risk because their ability to make an income is based on your ability to show up
1: every day. Mm, I love that so much. Um, you got my mind spinning now. I'm trying to conduct the interview and totally rewrite my whole business concept um, all at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we do the best that we can and we are where we are, but I, I think it was really interesting that you said when you started the lighting business, the only thing out of all the stuff was you knew how to sell. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. assuming that what you just said in that last one is that now you actually have a guy that's doing the selling that may not have started there, but now he's actually better at selling that stuff than what you were. Is that kind of what you were alluding to?
2: Yeah. Well, so, so specifically it wasn't our sales guy that I was thinking about, but there was a, but that is also a true story, but I hired a guy named Ricky um, right out of right out of graduate school 10 years ago. And I, at the time I was doing all the sales, all the vendor relations, ordering all the product, doing all the lighting audits. You know, I, I was a one man show. I was doing, I had an assistant. That was it. So so I, I hired Ricky to handle the operation side of things. I need him to go count light bulbs. <laughs> I need him to order things from the vendors. I need him to handle that. I needed him to negotiate pricing with vendors. And at first he sucked at it. Like he wasn't very good. Uh, not, not a fireable offense good, but like he, he just wasn't very good at it because he didn't know. Well, today... I mean, 10 years later, it, it didn't take 10 years. It was it was a lot sooner than that. But 10 years later, this guy is probably the number one lighting guy in the world. I would put him up against anybody. He knows things much, much deeper than I know. Because for him, his role as the employee was to just deal in that one area. As the CEO, as the founder of the business, I've got a lot of things i got to pay attention to. i got to pay attention to the vision. i got to make sure that I'm building an asset. I've, gotta, I've got other things that are more important than ordering lights. So if I'm paying attention to ordering lights, I can't pay attention to what's more important. And that's what the book really, really dives into about what's really important. What should you really be paying attention to?
1: Mm, I love that. So many good things in this book, um, and they do absolutely need to go to Amazon and get the book. Um, it is in the description, but I am going to drop the uh, the URL in the comments as well so that people who don't know how to read descriptions can just look at it in the UR uh, in the comments and get it there. Um, But for people who want to go even more than the book, um, what kind of work do you do with people and how can they work with you?
2: So one of the things that I do, you can go to my website, therealjasonduncan.com and then slash book will tell you all about the book. And there's a link directly to Amazon where you can pick the book up. But but I, but I am a, I'm a coach and a speaker, and uh, I, I work with coach. I work with my coaching clients. I do some one on one stuff. Uh, I don't take very many one on one clients because just limited time. But I do some group coaching. Um, I also have online courses. One of the courses that is talked about in the book significantly because it is the key to learning all this stuff is called the 10 Hour Entrepreneur. It's an online course. takes 10 weeks to go through. Also includes live coaching with me on a weekly basis. And then I also have a, a mastermind for those that are, are a little bit more advanced in their experience as an entrepreneur. You know, they're doing, you know, minimum two to three million dollars a year in revenue up to maybe 15. <clears throat> I take those guys and we, we spend a year or more together diving into their business as a group and figuring out how to exit the business. Whether that means to sell, which I have some clients who end up selling, or it's just to let other people operate it. So you can get in touch with me at therealjasonduncan.com or on any any social media platform. I'm at therealjasonduncan.
1: Love that. Well, Jason, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Leave us with some words of encouragement before you go.
2: All right. So no matter how hard it is right now, no matter how deep the hole is that you've dug or how high the mountaintop is that you're riding on, you don't have to stay stuck or capped. I can look at it this. Way. You don't have to say trapped or capped. You can do it either way trapped in the business or capped by your ability to grow it to the next level. You don't have to do that. The exit without exiting model will give you that ability to get out. So go read the book. It's not very expensive. As a matter of fact, right now today, I think it's only like six bucks at our pre-launch sale. You can get, it. it'll be more expensive later, but go pick up the book, read the stories of Edward and Cheryl and James. I tell stories. It's not just me teaching. Go tell, go read those books and, no matter how high the mountain is that you're on or how deep the hole is that you're in, there is a way out and I can help you.
1: Jason, thanks so much. I really appreciate you spending the time with us here today. Thank you, Steve. What an amazing book and a great message. I hope you will get it. You will read it. You will glean and learn from it. All the cool things that you can learn. If you will exit from being the center of your business and empower everybody, you will be a thriving
3: entrepreneur. with Steve, it's proven, it's guaranteed, it's gonna happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny.
0: Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur.
1: This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. As we dive even deeper into this whole concept of being servant leaders, of being a founder who serves, who leads their people, and who helps empower them for their greatness. Here's our next guest. Join me in welcoming Matt Tinney. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today?
4: Great. How are you, Steve?
1: I'm so good. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world.
4: Well, I try to show up with kindness, and I think there's really only it's really only two things that matter ultimately in life, and that is, do we have peace of mind, and are we kind?
1: Mm, both of those are really important, and you have a book. Um, it's called Serve to be Great, Leadership Lessons from a Prison, a Monastery, and a Boardroom. Now, of course, my first question is: is, are all three of those places you've been, or are they three different people, or how does that come together?
4: Those are all all three of those places are places I have been personally,
1: oh, so if you don't mind, give me a little bit of the backstory of that before we get into talking about the book and about leadership,
4: sure, yeah, so um, I've kind of always had this grandiose sense that I'm here to do something important and you know really make an impact in the world and uh, when I was young, uh, just a couple of years out of college, I was actually in the Marine Corps at the time thinking that that was a nice stepping stone on my, on my road to making an impact. Um, and I just, I got impatient and learned of an opportunity to defraud the government out of a large sum of money. And at first didn't think I would ever try anything like that, but I eventually convinced myself to give it a shot. And I, I kind of half-heartedly attempted a fraud against the government, um, and I, I had taken enough steps. I had done some dishonest things. I was rather stupid, and I, I had taken enough steps to be guilty of an attempted fraud. So I ended up spending five and a half years confined to prison. And about a year into my time into uh, in my time of being confined, I learned about the practice of mindfulness and ended up kind of converting the prison into my own monastery and trained informally as a monk while I was confined and then went and trained as a monk, um, out in the real world and some of it in a, in a quote unquote, real monastery afterwards. And that was really the the turning point for me, you know, always being interested in, in service, but really realizing that really what service comes down to is how you're showing up in each moment and how you're bringing value to people and how you're, you're helping people to thrive. Uh, And that's really what the monastic ideal is, is all about. And uh, yeah, so ended up co-founding and leading a couple nonprofits after that. And that's what kind of transitioned me into doing consulting with leadership, starting off mostly focused on the development of emotional intelligence, um, but then just kind of growing and growing and, and one thing led to another. And before you know it, I'm speaking all over the place and consulting with large organizations. And that's been, that's been the journey.
1: So just so that we can be clear, um, so that we are all coming from the same place, um, what do you mean by the word serve? Um, That's a good question.
4: You know, a lot of people, I know a lot of people don't like the term servant leadership because they somehow in their mind, they equate that with subservient, you know, or being somehow less than another. Uh, But to me, what it's really all about is, is not only thinking about and being inspired by and motivated by, but taking action to help other people, to bring out the best in others, to help them to thrive, to help them to be happy, to help them to be successful. So to me, that that's what serving is. It's where we're extending ourselves for the benefit of another, not out of a selfish motivation, but truly out of a motivation to, to help another person to thrive and be their best. And what invariably happens is... That does come back to us, you know, particularly as leaders, if we are really coming from the perspective of what can we do to help our people to thrive, to help, help them be their best, uh, that's a much more effective way to come about or to go about leading others than what, what we tend to get trapped in is, you know, how do I get more out of people? How do I get my people to be more productive? And that creates kind of this negative energy that's, uh, creates a vicious cycle, Versus if we if we're coming from the perspective of how do I serve the people on my team and how do I how do I remove roadblocks to them being successful and how do I bring out the best in them, not just professionally, but help them to be great human beings as well, that's where you get high levels of sustainable performance and high levels of engagement.
1: So you kind of touched on the whole concept of leading people versus driving them, if you will, on being someone that inspires them to follow you versus someone that's whipping them into submission. Um, How do you keep from being the kind of person who just is a, you know, a doormat, if you will?
4: Yeah, so you're asking, how do you make sure that you're you're not just being some nice person who's everyone everyone is taking advantage of? And that's yeah, that's a, that's a common it's kind of a common misperception that if we're if we're serving people by helping them to thrive that that somehow means that we're not holding people accountable to high standards and and it's actually the exact opposite. I think I think you, you would probably everyone would probably agree with this that that all leaders if if they have people that they're leading want the people on their teams to do great things, right? To to be great people to to do great things. However, there's, there's two different general motivations, right? If I'm a selfish leader, what motivates me to demand most likely performance is my own ambition, my own selfish reasons. I want more pay. I wanna, I wanna get a promotion. I wanna look good. Um, and that has an energy associated with it that's repulsive. People don't wanna be around somebody like that for very long. If, if I truly care about somebody, I'm not going to let that person be mediocre, right? No, Nobody wants to be mediocre. I mean, have you ever, have you ever met somebody who wakes up every morning and says, today, I want to be mediocre. And not just today, but every day for the rest of my life. Nobody says that, right? It's because we know that if we're mediocre, it, it leads to dissatisfaction in life. Our self-esteem goes down. N- nobody wants to do that. We all want to be excellent. The problem is there's, there are habits that get in the way, right? we we develop bad habits that are much easier to form than good habits. And that can prevent us from being excellent. So a, a leader who, who cares, who who's, wants to serve the people on their team and help them to thrive, to truly inspire greatness in them. They, they don't want people to be great for themselves, not for the leader. They know that's what's best for the team member, right? If you let somebody me- be mediocre consistently. They are going to eventually have to go play in another team. They're probably going to do terribly there and get fired there. So we're just setting a person up for pain. If we truly care about somebody, we are going to coach them. We're going to serve as a coach who helps people to to be the best that they can and do the best that they can. And it's not for ourselves. It's for them.
1: Hmm. I love that so much. So how can we do that litmus test on ourselves? How can we take a really good uh, self-evaluation, if you will, and determine, you know, are we being leaders? Are we being too weak? Are we being too demanding? Or are we really truly serving and and raising people to their best level? How do we, how do we kind of evaluate ourselves?
4: Well, The quickest way to do this is just an internal question with every, use this as a filter for your decisions. You know, is what I'm about to do, is this in the interest of bringing out the best in others? And I can only think of one exception where what's what's best for the team members in the long term is not what's best for the organization or for a, a company that you own if you're an entrepreneur. And that is... Obviously, if if you have a big downturn in sales and you absolutely have to lay people off uh, to keep the company alive, that's probably not best for the employee in the long term. With every other example that I can think of, and I have yet to find another exception to this, what is best for the team member in the long term is also what's best for the organization. So if you, you can use that as a filter with your decisions and you could do this retroactively as well. You could go back and say... All right, of all the decisions I made in the last week, how many of them were really driven by short-term execution on short-term goals, hitting numbers, executing on tasks, or just even purely financially driven? And how many of them did I truly consider what's best for the long-term growth and well-being of the people that I'm leading? And again, um, you know, if it's it's natural for us to to be focused on the short term, to focus on execution, we're really conditioned to do that. Um, so there's actually, uh, maybe, maybe the next thing we could jump to is a a habit for, um, for kind of overcoming that conditioning, but then even better than doing your own internal analysis by using that question as a filter, you know, is, is my motivation here, uh, serving the best interest of all involved? Is it not only good for the organization, but also good for the long-term well-being and growth of team members The the better way is to simply ask team members. And ideally, with some type of anonymous feedback tool, just ask them how well you're meeting the needs that they have for thriving, for for being best, for being the best that they can be. You know, how clear are the performance expectations? Do they have the tools that they need to do their job? Are they doing work that leverages their strengths? Are they being appreciated? Are they growing? Yeah, you know, there's uh, 14 of these kind of core needs. That if you're meeting them, these are the mo- these needs are most strongly correlated with high levels of engagement and retention. And so if you can if you can get a pulse on how well you're meeting these needs um that's that's the best litmus test is have your people tell you and ideally, again, with some type of anonymous feedback tool, which you could just use something as simple as Google Forms if you wanted to
1: then there's the other side of the equation, and there's the also serving the people that we're meant to serve, you know the clients the customers. Um, are there times when those two are at odds, where being a servant leader um, for our, you know, for our employees and being in service to our, um, you know, our customers come at odds, or if we do it right, absolutely. should they never be?
4: No, no, they they are absolutely at odds at some time, at, at some points. And I'll, but there's a clear distinction to make about when that happens. Generally speaking, I think it's it's fairly common sense to realize if you want to deliver really high levels of service to your customers, then we as leaders need to deliver really high levels of service to our team members, right? There's, there's kind of this general idea that I am totally in, uh, in, I'm, I totally believe that this is the truth. And, and I've, I've found an unbelievable amount of evidence to to support this, particularly in uh, organizations that deliver world-class customer service. And that is that the experience of the customer will never exceed the experience of the employee. So the secret to consistently meeting the needs of, of customers and clients is to meet the needs of team members, because especially as you grow, the more senior you get, the less you are the one serving the customer. It's the people that you lead that are serving that customer. And if they're not empowered to do it, you're going to eventually fail to serve the customer. And one of your competitors will come in and do it for you. Now, that being said, there are actually times where serving the wrong customer is not only bad for your business, it's bad for your people. And those two things go hand in hand. So I'm sure everyone can relate to this. You've got a customer that wants to spend a lot of money with you, but because they're a big spender, they're pushy, right? They, they run your people into the ground. They ask them to do all types of crazy things. They make crazy requests. They, they cut you down on price. So your margins aren't that high and you end up wasting a lot of time and energy, stressing your people out on this one customer and you know obviously this is something you would need to analyze very closely but in some circumstances i think the wisest thing to do is to fire that customer because they're they're ruining the lives of your people making them stressed out which means that it's quite likely those people are eventually going to quit causing all types of problems for you uh, and and those types of customers usually aren't the best for the company over the long term so it's kind of the 80/20 rule i think if you were to really analyze your customers you would probably find that 80% of your profit, not revenue, because revenue and profit obviously are two different things. You could have a, com- a customer that's spending a lot with you, but because they price gouged you, your margins aren't that high. So I think if, you're, if you really analyze your customer base, you'll find that t- uh, 80% of your profit is coming from 20% of your customers and that you really enjoy working with those, with those 20 customers because they're usually the least price sensitive. They want to have a partnership with you, they treat your people with respect. Those are the customers you want to you keep around. And I've seen businesses grow dramatically when they find the 80% of their customers that are sucking the life out of their business and out of their people, and they refer them off to their competitors.
1: Now, of course, all, especially small businesses, are concerned about the bottom line. And they're worried that with what you just said, that if they get rid of, especially 80% of their customers, that they won't have enough money to keep their employees employed and pay their bills and everything. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that really works?
4: Yes, um, you, you can't get rid of 80% of them, but you you find the ones that are the causing the most stress, then you refer them out to your competitors. Um, but keep in mind that if we're talking about revenue here, we're not talking about profit. So- it could be that 80% of your customers um, aren't creating that much profit for you. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I don't know the, the details on this. It's just kind of a high-level overview here. But as I recall, um, FedEx used to deliver a lot of Amazon packages, right? And they went through something very similar to this. So imagine you, know, you're, you have a contract with the largest retailer on the planet, and, but the, your margins are almost zero. And your your employees are stressed out. FedEx fired Amazon. And I think they're way better for it.
1: Absolutely. So um, what kind of businesses do you work with? Can people who are just small businesses, can they get help from you and your organization?
4: Uh, potentially, yeah. I try to help anybody that I can. I kind of have a general rule that I, I say yes to every request for help. Um, So it might just be that uh, I jump on a phone call and talk over some high level things and don't charge a dime. (laughs) So so I, I truly enjoy helping however I can.
1: And of course, you have your book, Serve to be Great Leadership Lessons from a Prison, a Monastery and a Boardroom. Um, And they can, of course, get that on Amazon and all the other places you could get books. Um, If they wanted to get in contact with you, how would a person get in contact with you?
4: Oh, the easiest way is just matttenney.com.
1: And that's M-A-T-T-T-E-N-N-E-Y, that's uh, matttenney.com. Well, Matt, give us uh, some words of encouragement before we end today.
4: Well, I, I think w- what we've talked about principally up to this point is just kind of the nuts and bolts of why you can be effective if you really make it your top priority to inspire greatness in your team. However, I think if you really reflect on this for a moment, this actually makes, makes life much more meaningful. I mean, I, I think if, we, if we're all really honest with ourselves, there's only going to be one thing that truly matters when we look back at our lives, and that is how well did we love, right? How well did, how well did we add value in the lives of others and bring, uh, bring happiness to others and bring success to others? That's probably going to be the only question that really matters at the at the end. And I think there's no reason to wait. Right? You you could start right now um, by really taking good care of team members, helping them to thrive. And not only is this good for your business, uh, but it'll it'll help you find deep meaning and fulfillment in your life.
1: Mm, I love that so much. Uh, do you go to Amazon and get served to be great? leadership lessons from a prison a monastery and a boardroom written by matt Tenney. and of course you can go to matttenney.com to go further with matt matt thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today
4: oh my pleasure steve thanks for having me
1: what a great message one that we all need to bring to heart so that we really truly can live as thriving entrepreneurs we'll be right back yeah.
3: who's on a mission stand out with your brand out say yes to your destiny.
0: Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur.
1: This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. As we talk about founders who serve, we've had some really great guests and we have one more amazing guest also with a great book that's going to really help you understand how you as the leader can affect the culture and make your place a better place. Here we go. Join me in welcoming Sophie Thien. Hey, Sophie, how are you doing today?
5: Good, good. I'm doing well. How about you?
1: I'm doing so good. Thanks. Nice wintry snow outside for the first time in a while in my life, and um, and enjoying being inside in the warmth. How about yourself? Yeah, uh, it's um,
5: I'm over here in London, so instead of actually getting snow and nice wintry out there, it's just rain and wintry out there as usual as you get in London.
1: Mm, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so you wrote a book, but before we get into that, tell us just a little bit about you and how you show up in the world.
3: Yeah, sure.
5: So I'm a founder coach as well as a startup advisor. I started off my career doing HR and talent for almost a decade and then very um, privileged and very, to be honest, very lucky to have gotten into the startup world in the last five, six years and have since been working with small to medium-sized businesses, working in building out their HR teams, usually the first person to kind of work with the leadership team to build our culture as well and Kind of one thing leads to another. And that's why I've written a book all about the soul of startups.
1: And as you mentioned, the book is called The Soul of Startups, The, on, the Untold Stories of How Founders Can Affect Culture. So let's uh, start off with some basics. Um, how do you define culture? What What do you mean by it when you talk about the culture of a company?
5: that's a great question so culture is defined as a collective behavior that we usually see in a company it's how we kind of go into a company and have this touch and feel around the people who react to certain situations how leaderships behave when they make decisions um and as well as all all in all just you know when you join a company this is how you're supposed to also think and feel like so all so really culture of a company is a collective of how all the people including the leadership behave
1: perfect so what is or better yet probably what really creates the soul for your startup company where does that come from
5: so the soul of the startups, um, as, as I've written in the book, it is really about how the founders behaviors will impact the building out of the culture of the company and it goes hand in hand, to be honest. so. When when I was kind of researching for the book, what I have really found that my experience working as an operator in the startups, my relationship with founders and CEOs have not been very different from other people who are equally just as operators, right? They're not all in HR. Everybody works in different functions. And when I started putting together the research and the book, we've, we've kind of got, come to a conclusion that, there is about 10 types of founders that I kind of use the book to explain and every single time how they behave in terms of making making decisions for the company, um, how they grow out their company, how they kind of set the structure for the company as well has typically affected the soul of the very startup. So. You know, being in an early stage, a founder may behave in a very certain way, and then as they kind of grow out the leadership team, and then the leadership team subsequently grows out their their, their teams as well, and the company grows bigger and bigger, you will still find that the very the very um, the most impactful person in that company is still the person in the top of the pyramid, therefore the founder.
1: So, and I know what I wrote in my book, but I'm interested what you wrote in yours. Um, When does the concept of creating the culture for your company, when should that start?
5: It should start from day one. It should start as soon as the founder or the CEO decided that, I wanna build a company, right? It sometimes starts off from an idea where they wanna build a great product to solve some of the world's problems out there, but you can't do it alone. And so then they end up starting to bring on maybe a co-founder, an engineer or a designer. And all of this actually in in, in early days, is just a team. And as the team grows bigger, it becomes, it turns into a company. So culture really needs to be at the very forethought of the leader even on their very first day of thinking, aha, I've got this aha moment that I want to create a product and I can't do this on my own. And so therefore I need a company to build this out with me.
1: Mm, I love that. How many, um, in your experience, how many times have you found that people, they wait, you know, they just, they have this great idea, they get started, they're originally a solo entrepreneur and they don't think about this element of having the culture of the company when it's just, a culture of one, you know what I'm saying?
5: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so common. So many founders I have um, actually interviewed um, as part of the research for the book is my, I, I, basically ask them one question. I go, how, how early do you start thinking about the culture of the company? And almost every time, 10 out of 10, they would tell me that they only really think about the culture when there is a problem. And this needs to change. And this is why the book is really about creating this platform to start this conversation. I don't think that there is any founder out there who wakes up one morning and go, "I want to build a bad business." Right? They have they 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 are aspiring to build great businesses, but it's not something that we have been thought. It's not something that is at the forethought of um, their, their day-to-day because it's, it's, there is no playbook out there in terms of how to build a great culture. It's all best practice that we kind of you know collect from other successful entrepreneurs or other successful founders. So I think the earlier we start these conversations, the better it is or the higher chances it is for us to build great businesses.
1: So somebody listening, I just know it because of what you just said, is saying, well, I'm guilty of that myself. And now I haven't really intentionally created a culture. So is it too late? Can can they fix it now? Or do they just like stuck with whatever they didn't create that kind of came up naturally?
5: I absolutely love this question. It is never too late. So I just really wanna put it out there that it is never too late for a founder because it's not really about, you know getting into a moment of thinking, oh, I've created a bad culture here. What do I do? Do I, you know, and ever so often the moment you kind of think that this is your fault and you divert into outsourcing the problem to let someone else solve it for you, the problem continues because you haven't really learned the self-awareness that you can be part of the problem, but you can also be part of the solution. So what I really want to urge any founders out there who kind of is sitting there thinking, what do I do now? Is it too late? It's never really too late start recognizing where the problem lies. Is this cultural? Is this behavioral? Is there something that you are doing on a day-to-day basis, whether it is not not creating the right platform and opportunities for people to thrive and empower them to be successful in your company? Or is it there is something that you're doing in terms of, just not making great, better decisions for the company, then definitely seek help, but not look at outsourcing the entire problem to someone else to solve it for you.
1: So then there's also the element of, you know, a lot of times you have a core group, whether it be the C-suite or whatever, that really knows and is trying to drive a particular culture, but they struggle They struggle with the... Um, The messaging it down to the rank and file to the, you know, the janitor and the guys who aren't in the corporate meetings, how can we as the leaders of the company do a better job of disseminating that down to even the little guys? So
5: definitely start from telling the right story, right? We all want to be part of the journey with a company. We all, you know, we we all aspire to go into a company to do great things. And I think everybody has, yes, their personal agenda. Be it, you know, career, um, be it something different, or be it just you know, further developing their mastery skills. But at the very end, you choose who you want to go to, you know, go to school with or go to go to work with. And so I think. If all leaders can really tell their story better, then it's much easier to actually drive the culture that you desire. It's very similar to the whole concept of why internal communication is also a pyramid framework. It starts from the top. If if the top leaders are very aligned in terms of what they believe is the right thing for the culture or what they believe are the right things for the company, then it makes it far easier for them to tell the story. And in my experience, I see this breakdown of internal communication or cultural breakdown is simply because the left doesn't really want what the right wants. So when there is this misalignment, it creates this parity between what people believe is right or wrong. And so therefore, when it comes down to people you know, um, underneath or people who are working in different areas could not really get themselves into the most comfortable position in the company.
1: Oh, that makes so much sense. And then, of course, you work in the HR or with HR people. Um, and so you're very familiar with the heart and soul and core of the left end and the right end coming to you and both of them complaining about the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, who needs to bring those two halves together? I mean, is that the HR department's responsibility? Or is there somebody else that really should be creating that uh, reconnecting?
5: So so I know a lot of HR people will will probably disagree with me because I also know that the one thing that HR folks really, especially HR leaders struggle with, is that um, we really oppose the idea of the leadership thinking that we are the people to fix and build a culture but on the other hand i do believe that hr has a very special and unique skills where they are often seen as the unbiased party if you really think about it hr's role is really to serve the employees and not so much you know yes you serve the you you serve the company but most of the time your majority of your agenda is to serve the employees and how can we serve our employees better is to be able to bring the two sides together and equalize them and so I do believe that HR is in the perfect or if not unique position to actually bring the two sides together, equal it out, and really try to find a common ground and really try to find a common ground and decide whether or not this is the right thing for the company.
1: So besides your book, The Soul of Startups, um what other kind of things do you do? Do you now do you consulting and work with HR companies or with, uh, you know, company leaders or who do you prefer to work with?
5: Um. Well, coming, coming out from writing the book and having, having such responses, I've now started to really focus my time on founder coaching specifically. I've always done coaching in a part-time mode, but I've now gone full-time only because the more and more conversations like this um, start to arise, the more and more I'm finding that there is I'm finding that there is a community out there where founders are beginning to realize it realize this type of problems and issues that they want to fix in a much earlier stage. And all we really need to do is start creating that platform for them to tell their stories. If you if you have a think about you know, or if you see founders out there, they tend to, you know reach a certain maturity stage of the company they've probably learned a lot of the learnings already and they start talking about how well the company is doing and you don't often hear uh, from the founders who are you know, just in the middle ground, there are eight people, there are 20 people, there are 50 people and just, just trying to figure this out all by themselves. So doing founder coaching has been really rewarding for me because I feel like on one hand, I can help them solve these problems in an early stage. But also on the other hand, professionally for me, it's because every time I get looped into a company to solve cultural problems, it's often not too late, but it's the problem becomes too big to manage, so I it it kind of works hand in hand for me to make sure that um, businesses are a lot more sustainable.
1: And as you said before, it's never too late. So whether it's a Fortune 500 company or a brand new startup, obviously the book is called for startups. But what is uh, what's your sweet spot? When would you prefer to have the person get a hold of you?
5: Um, where did you meet?
1: Like what company size is the is the size you like working with best?
5: Yeah, the sweet spot for me is really the early stage company. This is where I feel like there is a lot of impact that can be made. But at the same time, building up the foundation is going to lead them to a much more sustainable uh, future.
1: Mm, I love that. So, you know, for the people who are disheartened, and they're really struggling, give us something that somebody who's just listening today could do, besides, of course, they need to get your book. Um, What could they do to really help them begin to get a handle on the culture for their company?
5: Definitely. So three things I I always use as my top advice um, for anybody who really wants to kind of get a handle of their culture in the company is, one, start to recognize where the problems are. And even if there are no problems, start to... Learn about the behaviors of the people around you in the company. Number two, you will realize that there is a problem to be addressed when you yourself, if you're a founder, you'll start to feel that the environment that you're working in is no longer as enjoyable or as comfortable. And if it is the same for the other people in your company, then you know there's something needs to be addressed. And three, it is really coming down to always telling an honest story. Why did you start this company? And why is it important for everybody to be on the journey with you? The more we talk about it, the more the founders talk about it as a reminder for um, their employees, the better it is because it breaks down the barrier of people living in ambiguity or not really understanding the concept of the company or their goals. And most of the time, these are the very typical patterns that creates um, cultural
1: parity. So for a person who would like to work with you, how can they get in contact with you?
5: Oh, I'm easily contactable. You can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, just my first name, last name, Sophie Fien, as well as um, on my website. So it's just sophiefeene.com.
1: And that's S-O-P-H-I-E-T-H-E-E-N. The book is called The Soul of Startups, The Untold Stories of How Founders Affect Culture. Sophie, I really appreciate you spending some time with us here on the show today.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: You have an amazing you that is you. You've started this company, but now in order to really maximize it, in order to really be the you that is you, you have to empower the people. You have to serve those that you've brought into your company and allow them to really shine because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose and the world needs you and the people that work inside of your company, they need you to know that you also need them, that you're glad that they're there and that you are empowering them to their greatness. If you will embrace that, you will truly live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. Until we're together again next time, I hope you have a great week.
0: Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time.